want you to look at the first few verses of chapter 2 of James. Um, now, by the way, when I mentioned Terry a minute ago, uh, little tiny Chapmans, how are they doing? They're doing good. They good? What's, what's our due date? Uh, March 21st. Okay. we still got another month or so to pray. Okay. All right. But everybody's looking good. and Good deal. Okay. That's, that's been a scary thing. Um, have you ever been the victim of partiality? I, I have a few times. I felt like I've been uh, mistakenly judged early on and, and couldn't um, transcend that. I remember I was in a class in college where literally within the first few days the teacher decided what your grade would be and treated you accordingly for the rest of the semester. And whether you turned in A work or F work, you got the same whatever she decided you were going to have early on. And I remember how awful that kind of felt and, and how um, unfair it felt. Isn't it interesting that the Bible actually is kind of full of stories of partiality? What do you remember? <coughs> Uh, say that again? The rich always have the well, and so we're going to deal with that today. The rich always kind of seem to thrive and, and get the best seats and, and preferential treatment. What else? I think the, the prime example from the Old Testament is, is Joseph, um, one of the 12 sons of, um, of Israel, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and he was the obvious favorite. His mother was um, Jacob's beloved wife and uh, remember he actually had children by four different women and um, uh, Joseph was the favorite of all of those and it didn't go very well for him what's interesting about that um, Jacob had uh, in, encountered that himself as a child what do you remember about that Jacob and Esau you remember his brother Esau was favored by their dad, Isaac. Isn't it interesting how uh, the sins of the father visit the sons to the second generation? Um, certainly was uh, the case. Now here comes, you know, I have a heavenly father, and he has sent me a savior, Jesus. Done that for you too. But this morning, there's a red-headed savior coming to bail me out. I left my notes at home. <laughs> Thank you, sugar. Thanks, sweetie. But I'll take it anyway. No, it's okay. I'll, I'll, I can take it with me. I, I'll just hold it with me. That's fine. Thank you, dear. She's out of breath. Give her some love. That's good. Thank you, dear. Now, uh, what's that? Help me, Rhonda. That's exactly right. Exactly right. She's had that song sung to her a lot over the years, Joe. Now, um, when we get into the Bible, when we get into the teaching of the New Testament, we recognize that this issue that just kind of keeps coming up is not the way God intends it. We, we, we kind of encounter this idea that there are not supposed to be any Cinderella's in the church. What's the Cinderella story, by the way? Remember, she was... What's the Cinderella story? Remember, she was shunned by her older sisters and kind of ignored by her, her um, stepmother. 
Um, and uh, then she gets preferential treatment, uh, meeting the handsome prince, you know, that whole thing. Well, there's not supposed to be any of that kind of thing in the church. Now, interestingly, as we study the culture into which um, Jesus' world is, is um, uh, into which Jesus was born, um, our world, in our world, we're used to, and by the way, this is not, this is a rather new phenomenon, less than 100 years old, we're used to a rather large, what we call middle class. We can, in some ways, we can blame Henry Ford for that, for kind of creating these factory jobs and this middle class, if you study a little bit of American history and economic history. But in Jesus' world, there was no middle class. Most people uh, to whom Jesus ministered in his day lived from meal to meal to meal. Okay? They had relatively nothing. Uh, maybe they had land, and many of them did not. Uh, if they had land, they um, uh, worked it just to eat. Most people earned a meager living by farming or maybe herding. You read about that in the Old Testament even more uh, than in the New Testament. Maybe they supplemented that with a trade, but probably not. Uh, they earned enough just to live day to day as was a burden for most people. By contrast, occasionally, and we looked at this two weeks ago, occasionally you would meet someone who had impressive wealth. And, uh, but that, wasn't, that was the exception rather than the rule. Uh, these persons were free of worry about food. That was the main thing that they kind of, the, the deal was. If you remember in our study of the rich man and Lazarus, um, the rich man didn't have to worry about food where Lazarus did. He had to beg for food. Now, um, out of their surplus, some of this class of people would buy prestige, influence, and power. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, and we're, we're getting this teaching now from Jesus' half-brother James, into their world, uh, they began to look at the the injustice of all that and begin to write about it. And Jesus began to teach about it. So that's what we're going to encounter today as we look at a few of these things that the Bible is going to say just should not be. The Bible speaks of God's regard for the poor and issues severe warnings for the rich. Um, obviously, either outlook can be taken up by people in any economic circumstance. For instance, a poor person can seek a human deliverer and ignore God or try to just pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, right? We see that a lot. Or uh, contrast that with the fact that a rich person can realize their spiritual poverty and seek God in spirit and truth and find help for that. So... What I want us to think about as we learn about this today is, and I believe this is true, it's not about money. Okay? Would you repeat that with me? It's not about money. It's just not at all. It's about an attitude of the heart. Am I approaching God with the attitude of neediness? Or have I got some kind of a, I don't need anyone, certainly not him, approach to life. Okay, let's read a little bit. 
Bob, would you mind to read the first four verses of James 2? Okay, now, let's define a little bit what we're dealing with here. Uh, uh, James is going to go after this thought of favoritism. How would you define favoritism? Preferential treatment. That's good. Somebody else. How would you define favoritism? Partiality. To treat someone with partiality. A really, really good word there is this idea of partiality. Um, it, is, it is a problem in our justice system if we allow it to reign there. It's a problem in our culture, in our society, if we allow it to reign there. Partiality. Attention to some uh, with exception to others. All right? Now, what I want to say to you, I think the Bible is beginning to teach us here, is that favoritism and faith don't coexist. If I claim to live by faith, I will be a person who does not express or live out favoritism or judgmentality. Okay, now, uh, and the example of this that James kind of hints at here when he talks about the glory of Christ. You see what he says here? Our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Don't hold on to your faith in, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with attitude personally, but um, favoritism. He's dealing with here a little bit of the idea. He just hints at the one who is now living at the right hand of the Father in glory. He's reminding us that he gave himself for all, for everyone, and shows no favoritism. He gave himself for the great and for the small. All right? The Lord Jesus didn't come and ascend the cross for just some and not for others. I want you to, when you, maybe when you get in church today, or maybe if you're going to a restaurant for lunch, or maybe you go to the mall this afternoon, or wherever, you're in a, a larger gathering of people. I want you to take a look at the group that you will encounter, the largest group you'll encounter today, wherever that will be, maybe in this room. And I want you to think about it. I want, as you look head to head, okay, nose to nose, as you look eyeball to eyeball, as much as you can, I want you to recognize there is no one that you will see today, no one that you will see today that Christ didn't die for. It's pretty wonderful, really, isn't it? it wouldn't it be interesting if Christ only died for the connected? But he made it abundantly clear in his teaching. That there is no one that you will lock eyes with today that Jesus didn't include in his salvation on the cross. He kind of levels the playing field. It's absolutely wonderful. There's no caste system. There is no um, um, system of um, uh, something I've got to earn. In fact, if I tried to, I couldn't. If I tried to pay for it, I can't afford it. And so... He does more than anyone ever. 
at leveling the playing field in society. And I've got to follow his lead in this. And so James is going to say that favoritism and faith just can't coexist. Now, and he begins to set that up then by telling a story, just a brief story, a hypothetical one that uh, kind of paints a scenario. And this, what you've got to understand, it's a little bit cryptic, but I think you can get it. Um, in verse 2, what's interesting about this little hypothetical scenario that he sets up is that it's pretty clear to me that this is happening, this happens uh, in his mind in church. Okay, the setting is church. Now, but not church like we think about it. What would church have looked like in James's day? Somebody's house. Somebody's home. You're right. And into this home walks two people. Okay? Uh, and, and the treatment they get is, is kind of contrasted here. Um, wouldn't you agree with me that the last place that favoritism ought to have a foothold is in church. You know, I, I guess I could go back to our, our former discussion and say there shouldn't be any favoritism in families either. We see it there, though, occasionally, don't we? It certainly happened in several Old Testament families that we talked about. But the truth is favoritism should never happen in the church or in the family. We're a family of faith, right? So as James begins to talk about this, he sets the scenario of this hypothetical situation squarely in a church gathering. Now, what we've got to catch here as we see these two persons described, okay, in verse 2 and 3, uh, there's a gold ring. It means he's got a little bit extra, so he has some gold fashioned into a, a piece of jewelry, dressed in fine clothes, okay? Now, what you've got to understand as you read verse 2 is that word, that phrase there, dressed in fine clothes, in, implies, <coughs> excuse me, that this person shines in some way. He's shiny, or she is shiny. And that's interesting. Could that be, well, he just had the wherewithal to have his clothes really cleaned uh, to where they were brilliant? Okay. Um, you, you, as you read the story of the transfiguration, they try to describe what Jesus looked like and his clothes shined. Well, it's kind of a similar expression here. And the idea would be that either this person had some kind of shiny, expensive fabric woven through uh, the fabric that, that they were wearing, or their clothes were exceptionally clean and they kind of stood out. Now contrast that with the other person. What do they look like? Dirty. Why do you suppose? Working in the fields, probably the only thing, probably the only set of clothes they had was this one. And <coughs> excuse me, how do I get those clothes clean when it's all I got to wear? And so I wear the same thing over and over, and it just gathers more and more dust. What a contrast! You've got to see the contrast in your mind's eye. Uh, this contrast between two persons. Now, it's interesting in verse 3 because in this setting then, the rich are recognized while the poor are rather ignored. Okay? The point here is that one of these is overlooked. 
All right? The point here is that one of these is overlooked. Now, I've got to tell you, again, I want you to say it with me again. It's not about money. Say it with me again. Because I want, I want to turn this story on its head just a little bit. And guess who I learned this principle from? The right reverend Martin David Grubbs taught me this 20 years ago. We're not going to ignore those who are shining either. Okay? And I, honestly, I, I came from a background that was, uh, we had enough and we did great and, you know, but my dad spent lots of his life around people of wealth. He was, he was a contractor. But my dad did that with, you know, with, uh, uh, what's the, with, I uh, can't think of the, with like a Dickies uniform on, okay? You know, that, all right? He wore, wore a, yeah, he wore a dungaree shirt and, and a pair of, uh, he always looked great. But, but he wore work clothes and often wore boots and, Took him off at the door when he went in. He was that kind of plumber, okay? Um, so my dad knew people that, I, that he would introduce me to later in life, but he knew them as a workman. And what I recognized when I arrived here, um, you know, I, I remember the first few Sundays here, it was, I came from a, a pretty poor section of Kentucky where I was working, and I remember coming here and recognizing that I needed... Like I think, think at one time I wrote an article about needing a, a volvometer to, to to count the cars in the parking lot. You know, I mean, I, need to see, I, I walk through the parking lot and get all kinds of in car envy going on. You know, and still can do that, right? If I let, if I had myself to do that, um, and I'm thinking, okay, what what's the deal with these people? And Marty made it really pretty clear to me in those early days. He says you got to really get over this idea of classifying people according to a checkbook. And that was really good for me to hear. So I want you to say it with me again. It's not about money. Thank you. It's about recognition, what's in the heart. One person was recognized. and they said, In fact, they said, you know what? We got a chair right down front. What happened to the other one? Stand up. Or sit in the back. And James is saying it should never be that way. Bob? Every, every it's in one arena or the other, Bob. I, I, I think you're probably right. It, in, in fact... I'll, I'll steal my own thunder since we're, we're here for a moment right now. Um, to see others as God sees them is our constant challenge. And I think it's going to be something I've got to watch the rest of my life. Um, several weeks back, um, we were out of town and um, in a really nice part of Dallas part of this time. And, you know, I have a tendency to be a student of sociology. I mean, Watching people is kind of fascinating to me. And this place where we were, it, just, it was really, really clear that most of the people in this place where I was uh, had probably more, more than I had, and that was okay. I mean, I was kind of watching people and how they dressed and how they, you know, kind of all this. And, and I'm thinking, uh, but there also was part of me that wanted to look at some of these people and say, uh, do you not own a mirror? 
Okay? All right? Uh, and, and so I'm thinking, okay, there was, there was lots of evidence of plastic surgery in this place. And, and then there were others who were just kind of sloppily dressed. And I'm thinking, uh, you know, this place where, I, where we occasionally go, I always kind of dress up a little bit because I know, you know, how people kind of dress there. But I started getting kind of this little snooty attitude about watching this kind of thing. And I remember I landed at one point in this little trip, I landed, I landed in a, um, I have an uncanny ability to choose the wrong lane at the grocery store. Do you, do you do that? Is that you? It's always me. You can count on it. Whichever one I get in, whether it has two people in it or 16 people in, is going to be the slowest. Okay. So I get in one of these lanes at a Target store, and I remember thinking, I was looking at the person who was checking us out, and I remember thinking, this ain't going to go well. <laughs> and can I tell you, based on appearances, I was making that judgment. And I couldn't have been more wrong. This person was the picture, a paragon of efficiency. Uh, was incredibly uh, caregiving and... Um, they were very um, efficient, effective, and friendly, and fascinating to talk to in the, in the 45 seconds or a minute that I was in front of them. I judged it completely 180 degrees wrong. And it was all based on appearances. It should not be that way in the church, in the family of faith. Now, so somebody's recognized... Why is somebody's ignored? <coughs> Excuse me. In verse 4, as James begins to start teaching on this, he says, he says here, um, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil motives? What he's referring to here is that according to James, only an evil judge hoping for gain would judge partially. The idea here is that... Um, uh, it would be a person who is, is sidling up to someone that they think they can, that can help them and makes a judgment. The judge makes a judgment based on what he hopes the person that's standing in front of him can do then for him. Okay? We need to ask today, which of God's children do I struggle to value appropriately? Which group? Do I struggle to value appropriately? When we were in Lexington, Rhonda worked for a, a German national by the name of Hart, i got to say it right, Heinrich Hartje. You will probably never hear his name, but he was uh, brilliant. He was a, a chemical engineer and an electrical engineer trained in Germany. And he had, uh, a few years before we met him, he had uh, invented and patented um, a valve that nobody in the world could make but Heinrich. And he sold it out of, um, out of a, a warehouse shop in Lexington and Rhonda worked helping um, he and his wife Anna run their business. It was only a two-person shop and they sent, they sent valves all over the world. Well, Heinrich worked in, uh, in a warehouse most of the time and wore uh, Levi's most of the time with kind of a chambray shirt. And he kept these up uh, wearing a pair of some color of suspenders. That was his uniform he came to work with. But this guy was 
incredibly connected and very wealthy. He reads in uh, a car magazine about, now this was in the early 90s, so I've forgotten what, what model this was, but he reads about a new model of Porsche that's just come out. And being a good German, he drives a Mercedes. He wants also a Porsche. So he goes to the Porsche dealer in his work clothes over lunch to take a look at the car. Okay. He takes a look at the car, only one of which they have on the showroom floor, and he begins to um, ask questions about it. And the salesperson, who is very well-dressed, has very little to do with Heinrich. He ignores his questions, kind of pushes him to the side. He's got bigger fish to fry, right? And Heinrich continues to come back to this guy, finally asking if he can talk to the manager for um, treatment from which he got about the same. I, I want that car. Uh, no, sir, you don't understand. This is a $90,000 Porsche. It's one of the finest cars in the world. Now, I know that. I've read all about it. I would like this car. If you detail it, I'll bring you a check this afternoon. He did. Okay? He did. But they may have missed out on that, not recognizing that looks can be deceiving. Appearances can fool us, can't they? By the way, the one who walked among us, the one whom the Bible says, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The king of the universe walked among us, and we, many of those in his day missed that completely, didn't they? So looks can be a little bit deceiving. Now, let's go, go on. Somebody read verse 5, 6, and 7. He begins to evaluate this problem, okay? Now, James recognizes here that faith grows only in a context of need, of recognizing that I need something. So if, if uh, wealth gets in the way of that, or if the lack of the same gets in, in the way of that, I've got to come to terms with that. Why? Because it's not about money. Can you say that with me again? It's not about money, okay? Now let's look at a couple of passages here that are going to help us with this. Would somebody find Matthew 5, 3? That's right in the middle of the uh, Beatitudes. Thank you, Ruth. And uh, Luke 6, 20. Who'll get Luke 6, 20? Thanks, Wayne. Okay, if you guys read those in just a second. James is recognizing here that only those who realize they need God will turn to him. So I've got to stay needy in terms of my spiritual life and in many ways in terms of economics. If economics affects me to the point where I don't need anyone and I don't really need God, then I'm in trouble. Okay? Now, Matthew 5, 3. That my spirit needs to be impoverished enough to acknowledge that I need to God. And he says, that person is blessed. All right? Uh, a similar teaching in Luke 7, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 6, verse 20. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of 
What's he trying to say here? Blessed are those of you who are poor because yours is the kingdom of God. He's talking about an attitude of heart. He's not talking about money. He's talking about a sense of need. Now, this dishonoring of the poor that he's talking about is inconsistent with what they claim uh, to have as faith. Let's turn back in your Bibles, if you will turn with me to Luke 20. I want us to read verse 26 and 27. Luke 20, verse 26 and 27. All right. Did I get that right? Oh, 46 and 47, sorry. Luke 20, 46 and 47. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and love respectful greetings in the marketplaces and the chief seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at banquets. But they devour widows' houses and for appearance's sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation, he says. Now, the idea here is what's kind of going on that Jesus is referring to here. Uh, in Jesus' day and in James' day, there were those who um, could afford power, and they would often use that power to work the legal system to seize the property of those that were less fortunate. So there's this, the gap that is wide is widening wider still between those who have and those who do not. You see that? And the system was helping that, that to take place. They, it was inconsistent with their faith. And so he refers here then, he says, if you're going to be a, a, a subject of um, Jesus, uh, in verse 7 he says, by doing these kind of things, you're blaspheming the, blaspheming the fair name by which you've been called. And the name there is the name Jesus. That was a name that was scorned that should be celebrated. Okay, let's look at a couple more verses here, and then we're going to quit. Somebody read verse 8 through 10. Okay, it's kind of interesting here. That Jesus' law is called royal. James calls it the royal law. Now, what law in particular is he talking about? I gave you a couple of references there to look at. comes all the way over from Leviticus 19.18, but he quotes it here. I'm sorry? Kind of what you and I would call the golden rule. Okay? It is literally, love your neighbor as yourself. Now remember, when he teaches that, when Jesus teaches that originally, he uses the story of the prodigal, I'm sorry, of the uh, Good Samaritan to illustrate it. Okay? So the royal law. Now there's two reasons, I think, why James calls this the royal law. All right? He calls it the royal law for one reason, because the king spoke it. All right? If the king of kings tells you this is law, then I'd probably better listen, hadn't I? And so the royal law is named such here by James because his... His older half-brother, the Savior of all, and his Savior said, this is the law. Secondly, though, not just because this king speaks it, but because this is the law that James is implying here and that Jesus has implied already that supersedes all other laws. 
Okay? It's called the royal law because it rules over all others. Okay? That, that its law is called roy- the law is called royal because it's from the king and because it rules over all other laws. All right? And so as he goes through this little section that Cindy read a minute ago, he's dealing with this idea that favoritism is a violation of one of the two greatest commandments. What were they? Okay, uh, just basically put love the Lord with all your heart and what? Love your neighbor as yourself. That's the way Jesus spoke it. And so this is a violation, you could argue, of both of them, but certainly of the second. And according to James of verse 10, and this is kind of where we'll stop for today, breaking a law is breaking the law. Breaking a law is breaking the law. The, um, the largest traffic violation fine I've received lately, okay, <laughs> actually ever, came, oh, about a year and a half or so ago, maybe a year ago, and it was really benign, in my opinion. Uh, I was pulling up to... Um, I, I was, on the way to work and I was pulling up to a, a stoplight where there were two lanes of traffic going each, each way. Um, it was a, not a divided, it was um, um, on, uh, on MacArthur so it wasn't a divided highway but it, it had four lanes of traffic, two going one way, two going the other way. And when I got to this intersection, I needed to turn left onto Hefner Road and um, there was no one waiting to turn left but there were cars backed up all the way uh, quite a ways past the left turn lane. And so I decided that no one was up there to trip that light to, to get the light to turn left, so I would help it. And so I pulled out, crossing the double yellow line, and moved, in, I moved through that area that's striped. You know what I'm talking about? It's not a median there, it's just striped. Well, evidently you're not supposed to do that. And I found out $185 later why you're not supposed to do that. But um, um, can you imagine, Roger? I had not I, I had not sped in a while. I hadn't done any speeding in a while. Um, I was not. I had not taken what I could. I guess I had not taken John my uh, legally carried pistol and shot anyone with it. Um, I had. I had. I had not. Um, you know, um, said bad things about, uh, you know, the mayor, the governor, or the president, or anybody. I, it, okay? Uh, and I hadn't plotted to attack anyone. I just was trying to get from this lane and this to that one so I could turn left. You're not supposed to do that. And I paid for it dearly. Because to break a law is to break the law. Okay? What's the law here? The law is, Jesus says, everybody gets treated the same in my kingdom. You know what? I think we have a tendency to look at, at the, uh, the haves and the have-nots. We have a, look at, a tendency to look at those that are connected and those that are not connected. And I have a tendency to look to myself, Mike, as being one of those who kind of in the in-group. And I guess I ought to be magnanimous enough to accept the person who's not in the in-group. 
But you know when James originally taught this? And when Jesus was teaching? The persons who weren't in the in-group were you and me. I've got to see it this way. That if Jesus hadn't taught it the way he taught it, if he hadn't modeled it the way he modeled it, if he hadn't died the death that he died, and if James hadn't included it here, I want you to know something. Probably most of us in this room, we would have been the ones left out. And so if I, if I fast forward 2,000 years later, I've got to recognize that I could not be in a position to even make a judgment if God hadn't laid aside any prejudice toward me and included me in the family. So here's the challenge. To see others as God sees them. Now, let me just give you the last line here. God desires a big family, but he desires a loving family. To see others as God sees them, that's the challenge. It's a constant challenge. To see others as God sees them as worthy, every one of them of saving, that's my daily challenge. And that's yours. Now we're going to talk next week uh, a little more through um, chapter 2 in James. And we're going to deal a little bit with the interaction between what I claim to be and how I act.